0: What's up, bootlickers? I haven't seen y'all since the camp out. I got something to say, right? Anarchy! Anarchy! I don't even know what that means, but I love it! Anarchy is, and always has been, the best way and the only morally sensible way to run the world.
1: Cool. It's not just cool. It's the intersection of life and politics, activism and action.
0: There's only one way to get power,
1: organize all the workers together, one big union, and the war the IWW wants you to get into is class war, war against the capitalists. Come on, it's not criminal to be an individual. It's not criminal to be an individual. How could you go to a riot without me? You were supposed to be my a riot,
0: buddy. I'm escaping. One place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism.
2: Space! I was a victim, too. At least my wife was. She had friends who were socialists. Oh, my God.
0: <sighs> okay, welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt. With me, Michael Walsh.
2: I am your co-host, Michael Walsh. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective. For the curious or the committed, promoting a post capitalist present and future via direct democracy in a commons economy, discussing the means and ends of a multi tendency left that is it, that is of itself and for itself, the meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags of the three lefts.
0: All right, yeah, holding it down in Albany Town. Um, welcome, welcome. So, this is the leftist reading hour. Today, uh, we're going to continue our leftist strategy tour, kind of, not union organizing itself, but just kind of deep canvassing, sort of. Yeah, deep canvassing is kind of the theme today, uh, something that we all hope to do, but the thing that worries me is then, you know, the pandemic is ongoing, our system does not actually want to solve it, it is waiting for a miracle miracle cure in the form of a vaccine, and then debates have started about how to get people to use the vaccine, with so much anti-vaccine uh, vaccine, subcultures uh not to mention distrust of our institutions oh i wonder how that happened will anyone actually will will there be enough so it seems like the um to be fatalistic is that like we're just kind of going to keep doing these um sort of lockdowns we're going to keep kind of sort of fighting the pandemic until we have enough herd immunity and and thus, you know, that seems to be the strategy ongoing. That even though there was, you know, maybe calls from experts or governments to do lockdown, to actually do what hell uh, left wing governments around the world or even just some sensible neoliberal governments, maybe using some authoritarianism because they're more centralized, forcing slash, you know, allowing people to stay home and then providing the basics. Many countries are basically doing basic incomes while the pandemic is ongoing. So people have the ability, the choice to stay home. Uh, No such thing in America. We have to have Christmas shopping. So no lockdown here in New York. Uh, People have to get in the black somehow. And that's just, you know, just to save like, you know, so many businesses have not only lives, but we've lost so many businesses. And that's that's truly the, the true horror. So I, you know, I'm very very cynical about uh, the rest of the year. So like, but deep canvassing seems to be possible, wearing a mask. I think it was when the the total lockdown started. People didn't want to open their doors and stuff, Um, or at least um, some people didn't. Um, But that was when I was kind of trying to get on the ballot in literally two days because of the new deadline and stuff. So let's see. I kind of want a little, a little bit of rehash before we start, because um, I think we'll have enough time. Uh, so the pseudo conversation we we're having before the show about like when we notice radical themes in mass media. Um, how like I'm watching the third season of Young Justice, which is a DC animated show. I like mm-hmm. watching animation because I have a intellectual reason. Re- my like intellectual reason is. I prefer to watch media where I my brain knows the difference between reality and fiction. As long as it's animated, my brain is not going to be subconsciously tricked into thinking that's real. And I think there's too much, mm. and then just to sound like Temple or something like, there's too much media out there that's convincing people slowly but surely that fiction reality, you know, hyper reality that it's all one thing. I think it comes in the form. It's it's been on my mind. Someone posted it was I don't know if it was like a tweet. But the line was uh, a joke that I'm 35 and I'm still waiting for my call to adventure. Hmm. You know, I'm starting to think I'm not the main character. Mm. Like, well, a in stories we're always the main character of our own story. Right. If you're thinking individualistically, but we're also n- can't think of ourselves as part of a mass. Like, I think us and our clique we're always the fellowship. Yeah, and everyone else out there is the the hero. Charging across you know, I'm talking about Lord of the Rings here. Yeah. But imagine, you know, take pick pick your fantasy. It seems like, you know, we, we it's, it's always about putting yourself in the role of the hero. And it's like there's a call of adventure when you're the hero. What does the call to adventure look like? And so I started puzzling this out. Like, what was there a call of adventure for me? Was I thinking this way? Was the call of adventure seeing the Adbusters cover saying let's occupy Wall Street? Hmm. Was it um probably not no it was a long process of me discovering like finding marxism
2: well for me the cult you know. adventure was learning who bernie sanders was and mm-hmm. then from there it was kind of just a fast track towards the left for me mm-hmm.
0: so in that case like when it comes to the bernie sanders movement then it is like everyone's in, in it in a mass right but as long as there's that figure to follow or an apparatus that is, I mean, because the, the tragedy about that is that you have all of these people in a campaign and that could easily be turned into some organization.
2: Like, the Bernie Sanders campaign could have easily been turned into its own political party.
0: I Maybe if, and, and yes, there are a number of figures who are trying to do that, hmm. except if it isn't Bernie doing it, There there doesn't seem to be any unity. There's no unity. It's it's fracturing by that because you basically have five different efforts to do it.
2: There's the movement for the People's People's Party. Party,
0: There's Our Revolution. There's Justice Democrats. I mean, some of these existed before Bernie Sanders. So like Justice Democrats, but Our Revolution didn't. That's that is supposed to be the remnants of the Bernie campaign. Hmm. But does it include everyone who is door knocking for Bernie in all these states? No. No. Um, If it did, then there could be some deep canvassing and organizing. So with those questions on our minds, let's look at a story from In These Times. It's called A Bunch of Union Organizers Explain What's Wrong with Unions. We asked the real experts about the gap between public enthusiasm for unions and the lack of actual union members. Hmm. So similarly, we can keep crying, uh, like, say, Jimmy Dore, like, we should have a general strike. We should have a general strike. We're no closer to a general strike no matter how many times you say it though it's o- it's okay to you know get the ideas out there right it's there's a difference between talking and doing just as there's a difference in debate between knowing and proving hmm. uh, another line from <laughs> young justice uh, there there's a lot of lines that was like whoa that's that's more radical than i was expecting hmm. so this is uh, written by an hamilton nolan in october so this is from in these times if i didn't say that here is the most Fundamental quandary of unions in America. Polls show that 65% of Americans approve of unions. It's a very high number. And half of workers say they would join one. But only about 10% of workers are actually union members. And the yawning gap between those numbers lies the entire story of the American labor movement's decline. The systemic decades-long assault on labor power by right-wing business interests, and liberal ones too, is the biggest contributor to union weakness. But by itself, it is not a sufficient explanation. Why is there such an enormous disparity between the number of people who want to be union members and the number who are? And how do unions close that divide? There is no shortage of opinions on these questions, but we ask one group of people who know the most and appear in the media the least, professional union organizers. A dozen organizers responded to our call and shared their thoughts. So they're they're kind of each titled something uh, from each person. And I wanted to first share my own experiences with unions. Uh, I've been union member twice, actually, technically currently one as far as the t- um, the school districts concerned, but hmm. I think it's more just the retirement system at this point, because hmm. um, I'm just subbing and without any qualifications. Uh. So, oh yeah. So first, um, I was in SEIU, which is okay. So here's here's the first thing to understand: in the state. When it comes to state workers, there's actually two unions. There's a white, co- there's a union for white collar workers and blue collar workers. Ugh. So from the start, there's already kind of a not so much a class divide, but a type of work divide, um, which kind of comes from the usual trade union kind of ethos of you stick to your own kind kind of way. Ugh. But and, and after these formed uh, in the 40s, they. Where immediately it was made illegal that they couldn't strike. So they actually don't really have the bet, the, the real tool they have to actually kind of push any demands. Right. They don't have. And, and as and far as general strikes go, like we had the nurses walk out for, like they planned a one day strike like they have in the past, uh, especially when they did their union drive. That was two years ago. They still haven't had a contract. They've been negotiating. And of course they would, they say, and I believe them that the management are dragging their feet and doing everything possible to just drag drag it out until yeah. the membership loses interest and then it collapses, which is the usual strategy. And they did a one day strike and they said so, um, except but it seemed unclear whether it was a full strike or not, because the management got stick abs for three days. So they wanted to return the work the next day after their strike, the walkout, but then they were locked out. And wow. then they couldn't go back to work, so, which means it's money out of their pocket. Like They would take, they could take one day of hit, you know, as far as like we can sacrifice this to make a statement about right. how they're reusing P.E.V. equipment. They're saying it's being sanitized and then they're showing this picture kind of like a, you know, a dead fetus with abortion stuff. But it's it basically it's a dirty brown mask yeah. and saying we were told this is sanitized. Does this look sanitized to you? Right. Or, or rather, it is, but it, we're reusing masks five times over. And it's it, there's so much dirtier when you actually wear them all day. Right. Uh, so anyway, so when I was, um, my experience with proper, you know, old oldie unions is that, and then this is probably any union member can say this, like, there's actually very little outreach and engagement. And there are activists and union organizers that want to reverse this, but there is a institutionalization of like we're here to help management almost Mm -hmm. and i got that sense uh, when i was in a grocery store union uh where i'm literally saying like we kind of need more pay or at least some more like how about just more control over our hours right you know where we can like can we see the numbers for the store we're told about how slight you know smaller margins are can i see them can i be convinced so I'm like, oh, yeah, I do have to, you know, okay, fine, I guess we could cut back. But it's like, until, I have to take your word for it, and I hate that. Like, I want to be part, of, not part of management, but I just want to, we need to be informed. at least. Right. And, like, they're like, eh, you know, these two, like, fat guys from New Jersey, and it's just like, same thing with SEIU, inaccessible, they come around, like, or if not at all, they don't come around at all, actually. It's like, you know, you call us when there's a problem, and I'm like,
2: well, the, thing not really, is, yeah. the margins are tight because all of the margins are being spent on the manager's salaries. And they don't want to cut their salaries, but they're more than happy to cut yours.
0: Or some other type of waste. Um, yeah. Or spending that could be elsewhere
2: where the people in charge say this is why this exists to yeah. pad my pocket so i'm cramming the in.
0: two union experiences together they're totally different workplaces as far as like one was blue collar uh test packing for the state and the other is at a grocery store with the usual you know but it was a union shop so there are some privileges and niceties hmm. that say working at another store would not have right like we had pay and a half for working sundays okay you know and it was interesting to find out, like, this shop, it's ShopRite, uh, Wakefern Incorporated, They used to be a co-op, or it is, still is, technically, or was a co-op in the 30s and 40s. You had a bunch of families, shops, that co opted together as a buying club. Hmm. And then it's like, so all these things that in the Depression people did to survive that were cooperative and lefty, kind of leaning, they all kind of became big corporate consolidations eventually anyway. And I kind of fear that will happen again, where we have this, you know, the 2020s are a depressive uh, depression. We're gonna have mass organizing. This is gonna be the decade where, where it happens. I had a hunch that was the case. That it wasn't gonna be happening in the 20-teens, because we're still in the mode, and, and and Occupy didn't do the, you know, didn't do what it needed to be done as far as inspiring mass movements. That's what Bernie did. But Bernie was inspired by Occupy, so thank right. you. Welcome. <laughs> Um, so anyway, how do we get here? Uh, let's 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 hear from uh, union organizers who are thinking. You know, they're not they're not they're not a holes. Fear. I do not honestly believe it's possible to separate political issues from that gap between support and membership. Yes, stuff like right to work and anti worker, uh, neighbor, national labor relations board appointments harm working people. But right wing austerity, gutting the public safety net, the lack of universal health coverage is a huge factor to me. The biggest reason people don't join a union or organize their workplace is because their boss has too much power over their lives. When I worked on an an external new organizing campaign at United Healthcare Workers West, I spent a ton of time talking with workers who are terrified of losing their job if they organized or publicly supported a union because it would mean losing healthcare coverage or financial ruin for their family. A lot of people truly just feel lucky to have a job. While in theory, yes, they would love to have a union. They were more afraid of rocking the boat. I went to work on the Bernie campaign with the purpose of trying to change that. Well, card check or the Protecting the Right to Organize Act would certainly make it easier to win unions and first contracts, until losing your job doesn't mean losing your health care coverage and ability to cover rent, it is always going to be an uphill battle. Or a battle you just can't fight in the first place. Yeah. Service unionism. Oh yeah, sorry, that was Danny Keene uh, for SEIU. Uh, service unionism. I have seen union busting both hard and soft and these employers have gotten so good at narrowing the focus of the union. Uh, sure, people support unions in broad strokes, but when it gets down to the possibility of forming one, the boss is so good at either scaring people or convincing people that union dues are not worthwhile investment. Well white wing forces feel free to jump in anytime. While right wing forces are eagerly tried to turn unions into relevant third parties, unions have alienated themselves from workers as well. That's kind of what I was describing. I think that unions have simply shifted away from empowering workers through an overzealous focus on contract enforcement. Oh, yeah, so let me, let me give you a little anecdote. Sorry, before I, you know, maybe yeah. I'll cut it together. But when I was, when I started at ShopRite, I was pointed to, I asked who the shop steward was so I could meet him and interact. I'm like, oh, someone on the, on the floor. Right. Good. I could actually, instead of like them having to come to me, I could come to them. And I did and when i asked him like so are there any things you do you know as shop steward is there like you know meetings or just like a call you know i'm like uh no not really you know he just, he just he wasn't into it and he became a manager like uh before the year was out Ugh. so i'm also like so there's there's also a big gap between the full-time workers and the part-time workers obviously the full-time were more invested right. in climbing the ladder as well as uh, so what they wanted to fight for was the ability to ascend and how, like, some people, white manager, you know, pseudo-managers were picked first, department heads, while they, when they're a department head, aren't picked to go up the ladder. Right. And, you know, and all those part-timers are basically expendable, like, you know, we're, we're here and there, you know, we could quit the next week kind of thing or disappear right. or, we're like, we're half there in the first place. So there was very little time investment because, just like with training, you know, oh, you don't know whether they're just going to – they're all precarious. Right. We could bounce at any time or get a, some better job. But, you know, the jobs don't get better if you don't stick around and guard it. You know? Right. Anyway. Through an overzealous focus on contract enforcement through grievances and through some anti-democratic measures, unions have, in effect, made themselves a third party to the workers – these shifts didn't happen overnight, and I think intentions behind them were good, just misguided. Take grievances, for instance, which appear to be a win-win: workers get their issues heard with legal support, and unions get to justify their increasingly bureaucratic st- structure by bogging themselves down in the drawn-out grievance procedure. But in the long term, relying too much on the grievance system hurts worker power. Grievance procedures are purposefully slow and bureaucratic, which is why many of us on the shop floor wouldn't bother with it. We wouldn't even consider it because a, it would take weeks to address anything and we don't have time for that. Right. You know, especially when like by the time, like you get around to filing it or whatever, it's just like the sting and the anger isn't as there, isn't visceral. So it's like some of these processes, like when you draw them out, it's meant to demoralize and make sure people don't bother. Right. They take the power out of the workers' hands and put the decisions in the hands of lawyers an essential neutral arbitrator. They limit workers' imaginations from dreaming of ways to improve and transform their workplaces. And they turn the union into a third-party service that tries to clean up messes for the price of bi-weekly dues. Unions have also taken anti-democratic measures internally. And I and I kind of like, oh God, there was a meeting and there was like a company rep there and they seem to have as much power as like the union reps. Hmm. So I'm like, this is... This is bunk. I think the workers are largely shut out from the campaign decisions making that union staffers lead. As organizers are trained to follow the workers lead, but I see that teaching only goes so far. While I respect the perspective that trained organizers know the best practices for organizing. I believe that workers know their employees, employers, and their industries best. I need to be more included in decisions. This is from Daniel yeah. Lewis Sanger, campaign organizer also for SEIU Healthcare. There's also the nature of the modern pl- workplace. You know, we're all we're both precarious guys, uh working gigs and uh here and there. But, um, even before the pandemic length and average hours worked by those still employed, working an eight-hour workday doesn't leave much time for all else that needs to be done. Committing to weekly organizing, meetings, hours of one-on-one conversations with co-workers, the backbone of any union campaign, is daunting and for many untenable. The workers who have the most to gain from the union at their company those who are overworked, underpaid, and undervalued are also the most likely to take a second or third job and manage caretaking responsibilities. That makes it harder to engage in sustained union campaign. Though I think in the past, even and it can be in the present, that you circumvent this by just instead of organizing the walkout, you just like say like we're overworked. We should just stop, and then then you have the meeting instead of right. working. You do it on the job. You basically do almost like a sit-down strike. Like you're all there at work. You simply don't do the job for a day and instead chill, talk about organizing, and and maybe do that work. Yeah. But getting a whole group to do that, of course, very difficult. But I think you start with a few people. You risk being reprimanded or at least uh, have other people cover for you if possible. I'm just thinking possibilities here. Those who see issues in the workplace – and would be most supportive of a union are often ones who are on the way out of a company. While there's similarly a contingent of workers who organize because they love their company and want it to be a place they can remain employed long-term. Also in strategy, it's like those tankies and and parties, you know, uh, you know, lefty parties that we talk about, like, and this is like, this goes for Howie, where the strategy is as an activist to go to a workplace With the intent to organize it. Right. Like, so the people who are organizing workplaces are actually there to do so. Like, they're willing to set aside time to do it. Mostly because maybe they're from a privileged background, they don't have to work two jobs. Yeah. They don't have to be overworked, which I kind of see myself as. That's why I spend, you know, as much time as I feel like it to do all of this. Uh, Among the same lines, the career jobs of the past are largely lost in the 21st century. Even those who are satisfied with their jobs and enjoy the work are encouraged to continue gaining skills elsewhere for failure to lose their edge or miss out on opportunities elsewhere. I feel that pressure all the time. A decade in long-term commitments to employers poses challenges for union campaigns, whose core philosophies rely on workers digging into their own self-interest and organizing around the kind of workplace they desire. If employees already see themselves leaving within two or five years at any given company, putting in the work it takes to build a union may not add up, although you can think of it as a legacy for the, those around you. Right. We are taught to see ourselves as mobile employees who are opposed to climb the ladder in our workplace. Receiving a promotion to a management position is aspirational. And once in that management or supervisory position, employees are no longer eligible for a union. Even if a majority of workers support unions and would like to see one in their own workplace the distance between seeing themselves as workers who would be part of that and their own endeavors to promote out of the union eligible designation can be a great one Hmm. so it's that line that made me think of like people see themselves as the fellowship and not the army behind them right you know the fellowship doesn't beat mordor you know the frodo there's no ring MacGuffin that you put in the volcano right. and then that defeats the boss, you know? Uh, next, uh, Oh yeah. So that was, um, that was Grace records of North East lead organizer for the, for Pat, not, not path, which is professional employees federation, but it's office of professional employees, international union. So that's why she was talking about like getting promoted and stuff. Hmm. Cause that's kind of what's, what's happening there in professional settings polarization over 20 years of generational change the affinity for unions have faded a lot and attitudes to unionization break down much more clearly along conventional left right lines younger people and non-right people and liberals or democrats especially african-americans are the main supporters and white working class people especially older ones have as a group slotted unions in the rest of right-left issues, the same political polarization that exists in most other issues, basically, you know, because in the past, and unionization and trade unions, you you could still be a racist, or you could still like be pro-war and stuff, right. and uh, and and it shows up even now. The unions that have survived are actually the most conservative ones, the most right-wing, mm-hmm. as far as being pro-business and pro for the benefit of the company. They're non-antagonistic. Um, right. trade unions are like, they're, they're the ones that get the contracts to build the pipelines or the convention centers that are, you know, boondoggles for cities to attract development money, you know, capital investment. Mm. And I'm always kind of, I made the joke that like, you know, these unions would build Coelho de puppy killing factory for fur because it creates jobs. You know, yeah. the only thing they care about is getting the job and feeding their family. It's all very, like, there's no solidarity. They're, I mean, they'll go on strike for each other and there's like, there's tons of like brotherhood and stuff when it comes right. to carpenters unions and stuff. But when it comes to solidarity, say on a woke scale of like caring about indigenous people and the environment, that's all just non-issues. Right. It's, they're not even like, they're, they're absent. And it's frustrating because, like, these are the union, the pipefitters. You know, they're they're they, right wingers. They 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 they're upset that immigrants are like eating into their profit margins. So they voted Trump. So additional dynamics have been the youngest generation in the workforce now is the most left wing and interested in redistribution, but also has the least fam- least familiar with any of the concepts of unions and is not necessarily strong likely union supporters. There is an increasingly regional background to whether unions are a thing you see operate. Blue states and red states have become much more polarized on labor stuff than the simple right-to-work map indicates. Blue states like like New England, the West Coast, and Northeast have become much more proactive in working with unions to unionize more people and get them some stuff, and red and purple states, especially in the whole Midwest, have gotten more hostile. The educational polarization we see on right and left stuff has become a huge factor and whether young working class people want to unionize. Industries populated with poor younger adults who are generally over-educated like digital media or higher education are super ripe slam dunks where you can transform an industry with hot shop organizing, like in the gaming sector. Mm -hmm. Ones with mostly poorer younger adults who are not educated and are not mostly based in urban areas like retail and supply chain logistics, Amazon warehouses, have had cold workers that are not responsive enough to union drives to make winning a possibility. Part of the equation holding them back, of course, is how that generation of big-box retail and supply chain were built from scratch in such a way that unions could be kept out completely and any rare component that got infected could be easily shut down and dissolved. There's an attitudinal difference in the constituencies as well. You know, culture shock stuff. Right. A bright spot exception to this has been Fast food, where despite our workforce being young and not educated, really staying long in a particular job, people just hate their job and boss so much they are eager to unionize. <laughs> nice. What I find myself wanting to impress upon fellow labor—see, that's the thing. If a boss is just nice enough, you don't feel hostile enough to like we have to fight back, we have to unionize, right? We have to be collective in our action. If the boss is uh, personally nice to you, it's like ah, I don't know—it's it feels like a betrayal. Right. To unionize. Because then the, like, the manager comes down like, oh, why are you doing this? Are we, are we a team? I Oh, it's so insidious. It's terrible. Man.
2: Well, we are a team. It's just,
0: yeah. which side are you on? Yeah, there's that, yes. Perf- perfect turnabout. In those types of workplaces, I think any competent organizing program should be able to grow the union. But in places that reflect the educational and political diversity of the country as a whole, I think you're working with fewer total supporters And that's why you wind up chasing stuff like card check neutrality. So that's from Jim Schwab, and he's a veteran, Mm -hmm. or union organizer. The organizing model. The shop-by-shop model of unionizing in the U.S. makes it really hard to scale organizing. It saddles both union organizers and employees who want a union with a ton of strategic, legal, and bureaucratic work just to organize a workplace of even five or ten people. It's as if any worker who wanted health care had to form their own insurance company before signing up. We need to build a new model like sectoral or multi-employer bargaining so we can organize entire industries together. Mm. Now, what does that sound like? Like one big union.
2: Yeah, sounds like the IWW.
0: There you go. Now, the IWW also does shop by shop.
2: But I like
0: the idea of you're a member, and then if you have a problem at your individual workplace, even if it's not unionized, you can still get support from other IWW members or your local activist. Right. To like show up when you confront the boss. So it isn't you and your fellow workers. It could be people from other places. Right. (laughs) But it's still like you wouldn't be doing it alone. Often those most in need of unions have the least resources and bandwidth to form them. Staff working long hours and dangerous and overwhelming jobs just don't have the bandwidth to sit on a bunch of evening Zoom calls to learn the ins and outs of determining an appropriate bargaining union under the National Labor Relations Act. And that's also kind of a note on how legalizing something makes it open to being co-opted, being bureaucratic, and... Mm destroying the spirit of why it was like needed in the first place because as soon as see before the wagner act in the 30s all strikes were illegal and so it kind of Mm. like the fact that it was legalized seems to make it both unions legitimate and then it also defanged them Uh, when you make it put it integrate it into the formal process of our capitalist state you know That it just it just it's like stay on the outside always stay don't you know don't don't even push for legalization of pot and stuff because that's just gonna set up for the big pot company yeah um and that's exactly what has happened in in various states decriminalization first just decrim striking and then strikes and unions can keep stay radical because once they're legal and then there's a process and if you don't follow that process then you're illegitimate. And then it just created this binary of, like, you had more militant unions and then they became scapegoats, bad guys, and could be crushed because there's all these formal, legitimate unions that are following the rules. Right. Patriotic people, you know. Talking about the 50s here. A lot of workers support unions, but they think they are for other workers. White-collar Workers, in particular, think unions are for workers in other eras, in other industries, other workplaces. Helping people understand that if they sell their labor, then they are part of the working class and deserve a union is often the first hurdle. More broadly, our country doesn't teach or celebrate collective action as something people should aspire to participate in. In fact, many people internalize the idea that organizing is inconsistent with the idea of being a leader in their field. Hmm. And this is Daniel S. Rowe, an organizer in the Nonprofit Professional Employees Union. And, yeah, so some, there's a lot of great points and lines here um, that turn back around to what I was saying about, like, you know, hero worship. This right. is also another detail about media. Um, it was a kind of an hour-long YouTube documentary, you know, video essay, but more like a video paper on, based on how long it was. But it was basically, like, the difficulty in making anti-war movies and how it's never really done or it's it's really difficult to do and make a successful piece of art because in order to make an anti-war movie this was his main thesis you kind of you have to attack the hero myth or you have to attack the cult of hero, hero, heroism at all like the fact that even when it's a band of brothers you're just there to protect the guy next to you it's like in your hero in that you're fighting for your brother that's still, like, wrong because it's in the context of doing violence in, in war. And it's like, it's just, there's nothing good about war. There's no silver lining. There's no heroes. Nobody, everyone who died in a war died without purpose. And that's a, extremely unpopular. Everyone hates that. But it's, like, one of those hard truths that if a movie said that, it would fail utterly. But that's what it takes to be anti-war because even when, you make a movie that maybe hates the war but loves the veteran mm-hmm. or or the soldier yeah you're still glorifying the glorious death for your brothers for the people you care about right you know you're you're just you're killing others or 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 you're 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 there helping the effort still participating even if you have to really hurt someone's feelings and like the the weeping mother and like i just want to feel like my son died for something Well, and he didn't that's the hard truth yeah that like and, this, and the more I'm, we I'm say sorry. that and the more he we didn't. say that the less we'll have wars and then in a generation we won't have the weeping mothers in the first place you know <laughs>
2: this reminds me of something funny it's um uh, you know how christians say that jesus died for their sins sure well make sure you don't forget to sin or else jesus died for nothing
0: I mean, well, I mean, the theology is that we're always going to be sinning. Right. And we're born with it. So, even, no matter what we do, we're sinners. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's why I was in the atheist, uh, new atheist movement. Um, it had, it had many, many problems, but I think there are certain points. Um, what I learned from it was that the thing we really had a problem with was authoritarianism. Yeah. You know, whether the religion is organized or spirituality is organized, that's actually like, that's a question that can be very uh, shut down.
2: Yeah, religion just makes hierarchies very easy and yes, or at least depending on the theology of it. True. Um but yes, many of them
0: do in fact not only encourage but are authoritarian. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I you know, the more I'm paying attention to the arguments and what are we really complaining about when it, when Charles Darwin, you know, Dawkins and, and the and the others are like, and Sam Harris yeah. are making these things about organized religion. Like, they're complaining about authoritarianism. Now, yeah. at the same time, then you have to be, hopefully, that leads you to anti-imperialism or something. Right. But that didn't happen with a lot of them. So, disillusionment followed. Mm. Not in the original points, but just that, oh, we actually hate authoritarianism. And that's what, you know, that's why we could have, like, right-wing libertarians in our movement. Right. But we would never have any right-winger. Yeah. I mean, a, rather a um, conservative, conservative, yes. Even though, um, uh, who was it? The, I think it was the uh, Human Humanist Association or something. They would table at CPAC and hmm. say, like, we should, you know, well, we just want to reach out to the right because we are nonpartisan. We don't want this to be a left-right culture war issue, even though it totally was. And again, and, and to this day, they still hire Republican lobbyists as their, hmm. like, um, chief of staff, you know, their chief and stuff weird oh it's it's just you know washington swamp stuff at the end of the day oh yeah i mean the big win of the new atheist movement was when obama was elected and you had like a bunch of our leaders meet with cabinet mem- obama cabinet members mm. just to tell them about our issues that was like the big that was the peak to me was like that was the big win that we were like organizing for right. and then after that it was all losses it was all just like everything is like is still going bad the obama administration isn't helping at all wow it's just like what was the whole point making it about bush and, and evangelical conservatives when it's just about the money yeah and so then more radicalization okay not just authoritarian but also capitalism yeah is part of this organized religion would not have the evils or abuses if it wasn't for the capitalist you know the um all that stuff right okay after
1: that would forming tangent. a
0: union improve let's see okay yeah that there's no popular labor history in people's minds because it's all just erased from our education system oh, and yeah. never included to find that there was a huge gap between people's general support for unions and having any idea of how they really work what it takes to start one etc cetera, etc cetera, i think there are two primary related reasons for this one is that the labor processes are complex and arcane elections grievances weight garden rights just cause, right to work, all of these terms are either totally foreign or completely misunderstood by most non-union workers. I'm completely working on a campaign in the right to work state, and many of the people there thought right to work means unions are forbidden. Others tend to think that unions are something for just factory workers and the like, because that's the image that's been portrayed. Others tend to think that unions are something just for factory workers and the like, even though the service industry is and rapidly growing unionized sector. Relatedly, I think many who supported unions in a poll might have answered differently if asked, "Would forming a union improve working conditions at your job?" I see a lot of folks who generally support unions, but don't see their field or company as being a place to organize. Um, I think this is the case with most polling—that if a follow-up question is asked, you get totally different results. Yeah. Um, that's why polls are not so much stress-worthy, unless it's like there's multiple questions involved. Hmm. Because otherwise, like the polls, like when I got. You're asked, like, are you a Demo-Republican?
1: Right. I'm like, I'm... Neither.
0: Yeah. I, there needs to be more choices than this. Come on. You're not doing your job right. Because you basically... you got to put everyone in two categories. That doesn't help at all. Okay. And The other is that labor history and processes aren't part of our basic education, and so on and so on. And this is from uh, Stephen Moloch from National Nurses United. And the last is, hold my jacket. There's always going to be a gulf between supporting something in the abstract and being willing to risk your butt to achieve it in a real way. This is a dynamic that plays out on the ground during organizing consistently, as you have plenty of people who are willing to support the union but don't want to actually be public about it. The analogy I use is someone offering to hold your jacket before you get into a fight. Getting workers to overcome that fear is a key part of organizing, and it maps out the broader trend. Institutionally, the union movement has tried to narrow this divide for passing laws like Employee Free Choice Act or the PRO Act that reduce the risk of organizing a union. I don't think that approach is a viable or realistic option. severely so doubt Congress will pass a version of the PRO Act if, by some miracle, Biden wins <laughs> and the Democrats have undivided control of Congress. But even if they did have full control, like when um, Obama's The first term, they did have complete control. They could have passed CAR check. They could have passed something like the PRO Act. They did it. Um, And that was literally the first few months. And this is Brian Collin, union organizer. So for the last 10 minutes of the hour, uh, first hour, maybe I'll just pick one of these. Uh, They both kind of say more or less the same thing, though they kind of do so in different ways. So, um, But let's go with the basic one, which is from wall post uh bezos WAPO. um arizona may go for biden that took 20 years of grassroots organizing so the line with the theme here deep organizing the fact that the results of this election the turnout you know the turnout machine it wasn't it wasn't the biden campaign so much as it was actually all of these other forces that are actually more left-leaning more grassroots and not the establishment, and didn't really have to do with their money, because I doubt all of the billions were being distributed to all of these groups. Right. But, for example, in Philadelphia, you know, buying one Pennsylvania, this is because over the last four years, there has been more union organizing, nurses especially. And in Philadelphia, I think, uh, so it was pointed out that all of these new unions – You know, being solid Dems, I suppose, um, and also, you know, being anti Trump. Canvassed like hell in Philadelphia, in the suburbs and in the inner city. That's it's that kind of outreach that reminds people why they needed to vote Trump out. Um, Hmm. But also that turnout is dependent on canvassing and getting an outreach. And in order that you need an army of people and new unions provided that. And so Biden's wins wasn't based on whatever pundits are talking about. It's actually grassroots organizing Mm -hmm. that gets the goods. Whether it's Biden victory, more Dems in the Senate, or actual material advantages, which having more Dems in government, at least on the federal level, doesn't really provide anyway. At least in little bits. You know, maybe... Okay, this is written by Aaron Mayo Adam. My research examines what brought together Latino, immigrant labor, and LGBTQ community organizers in a coalition that gets out votes. I may not need to read all of this. I'll just kind of summarize it. I'll summarize the other one too. All right. Into the next hour. But the summary is as you may have followed, uh, if you follow national news at all, there has been the, you know, punct- uh, punctuated stories in Arizona, you know, at, um, Sheriff Opio, uh, Border Patrol, you know, there's all these immigrant issues that have existed past 10 years, 20 years, you know, since since 2000 and even before that. And there's all of these grassroots movements that have been developing, growing, fighting. You know, they win, yeah. they get rid of Judge Opio, stuff like that. And the small victories kind of added up to a broad coalition of groups that then also did get out the vote for the Biden campaign. Without them, the Biden campaign would have been like the Hillary campaign. The Hillary campaign didn't have any of this. I mean, they had all the union endorsements, but no no one was going out door-knocking for Hillary. Right. And again, it's not that they're going out door-knocking for Biden. They're out door-knocking against Trump. So without a Trump figure in the White House making everyone scared witless and a little crazy because he's so different, turning over the apple cart. I wonder if there will be, at least electorally speaking, that that energy won't be ne- again next time. Um, maybe it will. It Maybe it will be jibbed up. But it's we have three years to ensure that we have, like all this grassroots coalitions, that they do something different than just elect Democrats. Right. Um, they're not going to elect Greens or Socialists, but maybe that that would be the best-case scenario that we start electing real lefties through these coalitions and not just your standard Dems. And maybe that's what the DSA is going for. Right. Um, as they continue to run Dems and stuff. Yeah, so that's the first half. The second story is from Jacobin, actually, um, and it's about the success of the Australian Greens in Queensland, which shows the power of organization. So, again, hmm. they did deep organizing in large um, neighborhoods and districts with high renters uh which was and they were able to make and i think that the part i really wanted to stress was that they were able to make the case that the left labor representative wasn't good enough which is which is the which is the big barrier when it comes to like left-wing organizing right that like how do we make the case that the democratic socialist or the dsa endorsed candidate isn't good enough now of course there's results like say DSA endorses a candidate. They then vote for the pro police budget or they don't oppose. They're not really as oppositional as we'd like them to be. Right. Um, non antagonistic to the system. They're now in it. They're, they, they were co opted as soon as they were elected or maybe even beforehand. After all, the people who make good candidates are the people who are former interns or people who kind of know it. Right. But they did a patient strategy. Um, I can't really read it all. They just talked they talked thousands of people direct conversations with people at the door on the street or over the phone were the secret to making this program devastatingly effective by contrast traditional campaign tools print and online media and advertising are largely ineffective so that's something to really really keep in mind um this is firstly because the greens were easily outspent 10 to 1 by their labor and nlp rivals secondly Because declining trust in institutions includes growing distrust in the media. Hmm. So in-person outreach is not an like That's an institution people can actually learn to trust. Again, if not, Hmm. they trust it more in the first place. It's just there. It's not media. It's not an image. It's real. I mean, sure, a person can lie to you. But right. if you come across with the right body language, and you know, there's so much you can fake, and there, there are, of course, the fakers who are just really good, right? The con men we have tons of media about con men as heroes, right? But never about their victims, or we do, but you know, abuse stories and stuff, yeah. and it's just like abuse porn to me, uh, and I don't get anything from it. <laughs> Stories like that, you know, make it about the individuals, the individual relationships and stuff, but it's like, he was able to get away with this or do it in the first place because of our system. This, like, get it at all costs attitude. Right. These conversations demonstrate in microcosms the power of building a coalition around a set of appealing principles and policies. So basically, like, this article kind of says what, um, was it Sydney? Uh, Sierra. Sierra, yes, what Sierra was saying about, like, um, don't putting things in, in terms of climate change and theoretical and abstract concepts. Eat people where they're at. Yeah, which isn't to say, can't talk about inequality or don't, but, like, talk about it in terms of y- your neighborhood is not getting what it deserves. Right. It could get more. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, they mentioned something where, like, you know, and this is the difference between Greens and revolutionary socialists or something, but, like, what, uh, what it means to base-build or do the Maoist thing is that what people want right now which is say more daycare or something so it's like it's in the platform not to redistribute the means of production but we want to provide more daycare and that gets people excited and into it wins people over but i think in the past like that is what past movements have done and parties and stuff And then they get co-opted because then they just kind of settle for just doing the social programs and using the state to pay for stuff. Right. And then socialism, these democratic socialists just use the state to pay for stuff. And then, of course, socialism becomes the state paying for stuff, which is what it's been in our minds or we've been trained to think because that's how it has been in the 20th century. To do something else, would be a party where it's like to be a socialist or to do the socialist in office thing is literally to use eminent domain to take – abandoned properties and right. not sell them to someone, but just give them. Yeah. Or, or or do what some communist mayors in Europe do, where we're going to provide $1,000 for material and you're going to pay like $100 rent for the rest of your life, basically. Yeah. But that's basically your mortgage.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. But victories create momentum. As the Queensland Greens elect more representatives, they doubled their amount of representation, which maybe it just wow. means two to four, but... It's not bad. But it's better than, say, the Greens in Canada that, like, stay, stay one or two for right. years and years. But, again, it took them, like, more or less a decade or at least a cycle or two of, of directed canvassing. But um actually it points out also that their canvassing was particularly just also focused in this year, that if they do it in whether it's within one year or a, a, a four-year cycle, though in other countries it's different. Hmm. But in our four-year cycle, if we kind of focus on, on the four-year plan versus year-to-year, but again, the small victory, say, for an electoral party like the Greens, kind of comes in the form of electing some village people. Right. Um, village counselors and stuff, or a school board member. It's just that it, the usually we win in the nonpartisan races or the village elections where the party doesn't matter. Right. So it, it doesn't really turn into a win for our side. And so they're not really leveraged into momentum building right. to, to bigger offices or something, which is sad. And that's kind of been the shape. That's kind of been the lesson from the last twenty years of green strategy, or at least what has occurred. So that's the end of the first hour. We will be back in the next hour with more talk of deep canvassing, on the ground organizing with stories, um, more from much more radical perspective so thank you for listening this has been the three left show in the first hour i'm your host dan platt with michael walsh hello and um yeah we'll see you on the other side of the hour can... open
1: the gates and seize the day don't be afraid and don't break us. No one can
2: make us give our rights away. Arise and seize the
1: day. Now is the time to seize the day. Now is the time to seize the day. day. Send out the call and join the fray. Send out the call and join the fray. Bronx will be riding if we're united. Let us
2: seize the day. Seize the day, friends of the friendless. Seize the day, raise up the torch and light the way. Raise up the torch and light the way. Proud and defiant, we'll slay the giant. Let us seize the day. Don't be afraid and don't delay, don't be afraid and don't delay.
1: Nothing can break us, no one can make us give our rights away.
0: Welcome back to the Three Left Show. Nothing like a Disney tune about organizing, right? Um, that was from Newsies. And we're talking about deep organizing um, or deep canvassing, about which relates to it, and uh, strategies for organizing, looking into the new next year and the next decade. So next um, we have an article from...
2: It is from... Rampant, Rampant. or Rampart. Rampant or Rampart. It's written by Tyler Zimmer.
0: So I just want to set you up this. um, So earlier in the year, we covered the stories and experiences of ex-communists, still lefties, but ex-communists, who were uh, were actual communist members in the 30s, and they had rough experiences. One was Richard Wright in Chicago.
1: Hmm.
0: Uh, So that was a kind of zoom in with one person and one experience. This is about the general, like, about the Communist Party in Chicago okay. in the thirties. So take it away.
2: So in the nineteen thirties, the Communist Party in Chicago was a vibrant multiracial organization with thousands of members that actively fought against racism and class inequality. There is much socialist today can learn from its success and failures. In the last two months, hundreds of thousands of people throughout the United States have taken to the streets to denounce racism and police violence. In response, 17,000 National Guard troops were deployed to put down the uprising, curfews were declared in more than 30 cities, and tens of thousands of protesters were arrested. And yet, the historic nationwide upsurge in protest against racism continues. Indeed, the movement is winning. Victories that would have been unthinkable only a short while ago. Early on, many of the protests and collective acts of rebellion came together uh, spontaneously, without the aid of long-standing organizations of the left but as time goes by it's becoming more and more apparent that durable organizational infrastructure is needed in order to sustain mass participation train new layers of activists and channel public anger into winnable demands
0: i just want to cut in and uh, point out this was written
2: midsummer what kinds of organizations are needed however Among socialists, no less than among the public more generally, there are healthy debates underway that are bringing into the fore questions about black leadership and white participation in anti-racist movements. One such question is, is it even possible, let alone desirable, to build a large-scale multiracial socialist organization in a country that is saturated from top to bottom with racism? More to the point, is it even worth trying to bring together masses of black and white socialists into one big organization to fight against racism in all forms of oppression and exploitation? Certainly there are good reasons to doubt whether this can be done, and many socialists of color have long lists of grievances against the majority white formations that justifiably leave them skeptical about the very aim of building a multiracial organization. But it has been done before, and in Chicago no less. In the 1930s, the Communist Party, er, the Chicago chapter of the Communist Party, CP, was despite all its problems and contradictions, a vibrant multiracial organization with thousands of members and a much larger mass of sympathizers that actively fought against racism, built mass organizations dedicated to stopping evictions, and put together unemployed councils that concentrated popular discontent and channeled it into a large-scale campaign that won impressive victories.
0: Now, throughout this article, he's going to keep mentioning uh, stopping evictions and the unemployment councils. And, of course, these should be ringing bells in your head of, yes, we have mass unemployment right now and an eviction crisis. Yeah. So it's just like history rhymes, and this is the kind of stuff that we need to be like thinking about. Like, How do they do it then? How do we replicate it? or how we adapt it to now with our smartphones.
2: Well, in a city marked by aggressive anti-black racism and relentless racial segregation, the CP had a several thousand strong membership in Chicago Chicago in the 1930s that cut across the color line. Although black people made up only 7% of Chicago's population, they constituted roughly 25% of more than 3,300 Chicagoan members of the CP. These figures are all the more improbable given that City Hall and employers had a long-standing penchant for using divide-and-conquer to destroy labor solidarity and weaken the collective power of the working class as a whole. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, capitalists deftly seized upon inequalities among workers in order to pit them against one another and thereby defeat union drives and strikes. Philip Armoir, the owner of the largest packing house in Chicago, explained it like this. We change among different nationalities and languages. It prevents them from getting together. We have the thing systematized. Black workers were treated the worst and were, um, as it's sometimes put, last hired, first fired. How, then, was the 1930s-era CP in Chicago able to build a 3,000-strong multiracial organization in a context so unfavorable to anti-racist politics and working-class solidarity? In particular, why did scores of black radicals see the multiracial CP as the best organizational vehicle for achieving their political goals? even though they had many good reasons to be skeptical of the majority white group. Some of the answers to these questions are to be found in the remarkable, if largely unknown, history of the Chicago CP in the 1930s, which is explored at length in the Randy Scorch's excellent book, Red Chicago, American Communism and Its Grassroots, 1928-1935. to in this article, I'd like to explore some of this history with an eye to draw out some practical lessons about multiracial socialist organization in the present, organizing in the present. The late 1920s is a good place to begin as any. As late as 1928, the membership of Chicago CP was small and overwhelmingly white, and the party's activist priorities in Chicago tended to reflect that fact. At the same time, however, the political scene in black Chicago was especially dynamic and teeming with newly formed organizations. There were, for example, annual rallies and marches celebrating the Nat Turner Rebellion, as well as a layer of activists around Marcus Gravy's universal Negro improvement. It's, it's Garvey. Marcus Garvey. Don't worry, I made
0: that mistake the first time I read the name, but it's Garvey. Very important figure. Basically, like... Kwanzaa and all that stuff. Ah,
2: the Universal Negro Improvement Association at UNIA. Chicago was also home to a variety of politically active community institutions, such as the NAACP, the Urban League, a swath of black churches big and small, and the Chicago Defender, the country's most well-known black newspaper. This political ecosystem was thrown into disarray, however, as the Great Depression set in. Waves of mass layoffs sparked by the onset of the Depression suddenly threw 40% of black workers out of work. And with layoffs came the threat of eviction and eventually starvation. This was an especially devastating blow for a generation of African Americans who had fled to Chicago in order to escape the ruthless exploitation and grinding poverty of sharecropping in the rural Jim Crow South. Middle-class, relatively conservative organizations such as the NAACP and Urban League, which had never really sought to include the black working poor within their ranks, had little to offer the most hard-hit sections of black Chicago. And This meant any radicalization among the black poor would need to find organizational expression elsewhere.
0: I want to jump in yeah. that this dynamic hasn't changed over the century. When it comes to the urban League, like I went to a meeting of theirs in the uh, South End, and their main I mean they're very good people, but their main priority seemed to be get out the vote and democratic party no. activism I mean rather the the questions on their lips were the young people don't want to vote. how do we get them interested in voting just not not so much voting for what or how, but just voting. And I'm like, wrong questions, guys. I mean, come on. If you don't know why they're disenchanted with our elect- like our pro- political process, I mean, come on. Right. I mean, they're in poverty. And yeah. this is like, you started doing this when you were their age. And again, it's like there's... They're more professional and, and they're church people and conservative in that right. way, in some respects. So they'll they shame gay or they like, you know they'll, they'll disown their kid if they come out. You know, right? It's like you wonder why the kids don't you know want to go along with and join the Urban League, <laughs> yeah, uh, or or the NAACP even, yeah, because like their their activism is very limited, and, and especially when it comes to who they endorse and stuff. I mean, it, even progressives,
2: right. Well, as Claude Lightfoot, a leading black member of the CP in the 1930s, put it, there was a time when black people were in a stage of transition from old methods of struggle for their rights, when a new crowd of militant working class black activists was growing in Chicago who tended to distrust the legalistic focus of groups such as the NAACP. It was hardly inevitable that masses of black workers would gravitate towards the CP. However, in the 1920s, Marcus Garvey's UNIA had a mass membership that included poor and working class black people, but internal corruption and a limited political program. Garvey praised capitalism and advocated for black people to leave the United States and form a new nation in Africa, uh, weakened its standing once the Depression set in. The Harlem-based African Blood Brotherhood, ABB, was formed by black radicals dissatisfied with conservatism of Garvey and had a presence in Chicago in the 1920s. But by the mid-30s, the majority of militant black activists had found their way into the CP.
0: Let's skip forward to the next section, which is kind of like a few uh, anecdotes of people's journey into the CP.
2: Point Dexter had moved to Chicago from Nashville, where he had witnessed lynchings firsthand. Uh, Storch describes his political radicalization as follows. Point Dexter first gravitated towards the Garveyites, but listened to the debates in Washington Park. He eventually found communists more convincing. William Patterson, an African-American party leader, later recalled that the party's belief that blacks and whites needed to work together ultimately caused Point Dexter to leave the Garveyite movement. Point Dexter soon developed a reputation as a fiery orator. As a fellow party member recalled, when he got through preaching, everybody'd be ready to go into the lake with him. That's how much power he had over the people. Claude Lightfoot was another black militant drawn to the CP in this period. And it's got a little.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. His uh, uh, a uh, little yeah. campaign. His uh, campaign liftlet. Elect Claude Lightfoot, communist candidate for assemblyman, fifth senatorial district. Vote for a militant struggle against starvation for unemployment, relief, and Negro rights for release of the, the Scottsboro Boys. Vote, vote communist. communist. Vote November February 8th. Issued <laughs> by Communist Election Campaign Committee. Well, you know that meme with Luann It's like, vote communist? Yeah. Yeah, that's what made my well, job right. Well,
2: Lightfoot was already a well-known activist and organizer by the time he became a CP member. Through the Republican and Democratic parties, or though the Republican and Democratic parties sought to recruit and co-opt him, he eventually turned them both down and joined the CP part, partly, as he put it, for idealistic reasons to help the poor, the downtrodden, and oppressed people all over the world. But this wasn't the whole story. Lightfoot would later recall that he joined after having gotten up on the soapbox, cursing out the police, and then marching away triumphantly with the workers. Harry Haywood joined the CP around the same time. Haywood was born in Nebraska to parents who had once been slaves. After serving in the military and returning in the midst of the 1919 race riots, in effect a racist program against black Chicagoans, his shock and anger sparked a political radicalization. At first, he gravitated towards the Garviates and industrial workers of the world. Ultimately, he chose the CP on the basis of his judgment that it comprised the best and most sincere revolutionary and internationally minded elements along or among white radicals and therefore formed the basis for the revolutionary unity of blacks and whites. It was part of a world revolutionary movement, uniting Chinese, Africans and Latin Americans with Europeans and North Americans through the third international. Haywood was not alone in feeling this way. Many radical black activists in this period were impressed by the serious anti-colonial and anti-racist politics of the CP and joined on that basis. Though academic stereotypes misrepresent Marxism as an essentially white political movement focused only on class, the CP in the 1920s and 30s viewed anti-racism as a central part of its project. As early as 1921, the CP's program stated that the Negro workers in America are exploited and oppressed more than any other group. The history of the Negro in America is the history of a reign of terror, of persecution, rape, and murder. The party's task will be to fight for social, political, and economic equality and destroy altogether the barrier of race and prejudice. 1930, the Communist International declared that white workers had to prove themselves worthy of the confidence of Negro workers. Every white worker must unhesitatingly jump at the throat of any person who strikes a Negro in the face or, her per- or who persecutes a Negro.
0: So, um, before you continue, when you will. Good job, by the way. Um, Thank you. The, the part we did skip with the two paragraphs were about how you know, Washington Park was basically the big place where all the soapbox speaking mm. happens. And it's because anyone who was unemployed or didn't have anything else to do would congregate there. Mm. And the thing about, the thing I hate suburbia and cars so much is because it created, made America a landscape. The, the urban, It destroyed urban landscapes where there's no place anyone congregates anymore. Yeah. Maybe the mall, but you can't soapbox at the mall. No. There's no free speech at the mall. No, they
2: throw me out if I go to the mall and start... Yeah, even, even the discreetly talking. leaflet, you know, is... Yeah.
0: I mean, maybe we could get around it by renting one of those little, like, box stalls. Well, we but.
2: well that's <laughs> why the internet is around. My page is my soapbox, and I... Yeah, everyone's
0: congregating yeah. there virtually. But the thing about virtual spaces is, like you mentioned, you know, he, he called along and he joined the CP because, like, there was... People were there together, right. you know, and yeah. they could walk away together. You know, in virtual spaces, it's just like you communicate with text and images and video,
1: and it, it and then that's it. yeah,
0: yeah, and 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 you know, especially like the, the politics of place that um did, were you there for this conversation? I think so. Yeah, politics of place that like this is kind of what we need. The fact that cyberspace is not not a place. I mean, it was kind of theorized that it would be you know, like it could be. But something's missing, and it's definitely, you know,
2: not until VR gets better.
0: I don't even know if that's. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's still it's a matter of separation that we're not in one place. We don't. I mean, maybe we don't have to be in the same place. So this is mentioned later about like the anti eviction stuff that since there were always a group of reds at Washington Park, there was always some place to go. Right. And I'm like, what would replace that today? Well, basically, you'd have a, a tip line of a phone number. And then you find the phone number via website, but then everyone has to remember the website. You know, right. it, before, they just have to remember, go to Washington, go to the park and get the rents. Yeah. You know, they, now it's like, go to cp.net, you yeah. know, or my website, you know, which is 3 less dot news. You know, it's something you have to remember. It's something that you can't, like, you have to go there to look up the number to call me. You know, you can't just find me here or right. have an office open or... Occup- I mean what made Occupy successful was the fact that it was in a park and yeah. you could just go there anytime and do activism. Yeah. And when it's disjointed and it's part of a social club or it's a clique or it's not in the public realm. Yeah. Because capitalism has destroyed the public realm. And that's yeah. it's true victory. Over leftism was the destructive, like, which basically started in earnest in the sixties and seventies, destroying the first public housing and 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 uh, and mass building highways. It it kind of becomes like, what do you attack first? Of course, anything is a viable target for activism. I mean, but like you know, attacking roads and car culture. It's like all of this has to be like it's all integrated as far as like you know, fighting for leftism or fighting for. Uh, A Just World includes fighting for public spaces where you can soapbox. Yeah. Because otherwise there is no place except online. But even there, obviously, it's corporate controlled. Oh, yeah. And it's not so free and the the new place to do it.
2: Yeah, I'm in the middle of a 30-day zuck because the corporate overlords have decided that they don't like what I have to say. Yeah. So uh, you can't just rail
0: about Zuck and then walk away with the workers, right? Because you can't walk away
2: or walk to somewhere
0: with your followers.
2: No, I-, I want to put out like a thing saying, "Hey, if you're in the New York Capital District, yes. message me. Please. If you're if you're local, please reach out to me. Yeah. So and we can do things Exa- in yes. the real world."
0: Um, I know that, like, certain podcasters, you know, do meetups and stuff after a yeah. set. You know, Citizen Radio did this, and that's, I mean, I met, and it was kind of part of the radicalization. It wasn't all of it, but when they would actually do the show in Manhattan, you know, which would be every other month or something. Right. Um, At the Upright Citizen Brigade Theater, I would go, and then we'd go out for vegan food. It was the first time I had fake meat, and mm. it actually kind of turned me on to getting more of it. Um, yeah, I like fake meat. So... Yeah, and it was Chinese, so it was like huh. vegan Chinese. Interesting. Um, With, with um, the, the kind of vegan chicken nuggets, Interesting. but made like General Tau's chicken. Interesting.
2: I don't have a lot of Chinese food. I have a peanut allergy, so Chinese food doesn't really jive with that super well. Mm, unless
0: there's like a really specific place that serves peanut-free Chinese food.
2: Well, there was a Mongolian buffet in my college town, and that was my favorite restaurant because they didn't use peanut oil not in most of their stuff and Mm -hmm. it was yummy but i'll i'll keep reading yep so talk is cheap however and it is not likely that a mass influx of black chicagoans into the cp would have occurred had it not been for the respect the party won through doing serious activist work that resulted in viable tangible victories for black workers that work was multifaceted and the two most important campaigns were the unemployed councils and anti-eviction movement. Unemployed councils were grassroots formations organized by CP members that brought together laborers thrown out of work by the Depression to fight for unemployment insurance, public works jobs, and more. Black workers were the hardest hit by the Depression, and on the one hand were more hemmed in by racist labor market restrictions than any other group. On the other, to organize unemployed black workers too loudly and confidently and confidently demand their due. Don't worry, the writing is kind of... That meant confronting a variety of white supremacist structures established by the state and employers. It meant, among other things, bracing for violent police backlashes aimed at forcing black laborers to remain the most vulnerable and marginalized group within the working class. And, most importantly, successfully carrying out this work meant requiring white CP members to go to black neighborhoods and put their lives on the line to fight alongside black workers. Unsurprisingly, these unprecedented public acts of interracial working-class solidarity provoked a violent backlash from the authorities. As has often been the case throughout American history, city officials and business elites were deeply troubled by the emergence of a multiracial political movement capable of upsetting the balance of power in the city by uniting workers who were previously kept collectively powerless by being pitted against one another. In 1932, City Hall struck back by ordering an end to the growing anti-eviction activism aimed at keeping working people in their homes in the midst of the Depression. The CP played the leading role in organizing the mass movement against evictions, so this crackdown was a targeted attack on the CP. But because rates of evictions were much higher in black neighborhoods, those who participated in the CP, led anti-eviction struggle, were overwhelmingly African-American. Thus, when the Chicago Police Department got its orders to smash the movement, the cops saw their tasks as twofold. To discipline and punish black people to keep them in their place while destroying the multiracial organization that was waging the struggle by uniting the workers across the color line. To do this, the CPD formed special units called Red Squads that regularly harassed CP members, attacked demonstrations, raided meetings, and destroyed CP property. As a result of this organizing work, the black membership of the CP increased tenfold in the space of a few years. Indeed, in 1932, the communist vote was the most concentrated in black neighborhoods on the south side, particularly in the area directly north of Washington Park, from 43rd to Pershing between Wentworth and State. In these areas, votes for the CP not only reflected people's support for the black vice presidential candidate, James Ford, but also recognized work the party did in these areas, This work centered on organizing unemployed workers and extended into unemployed organizing, campaigns for racial equality and Marxist education. Unlike the Democratic Party machine in Chicago, which was solidly committed to racial segregation and white supremacy, the CP fielded many black candidates for a variety of city, state, and federal offices during the Depression. One candidate for state representative, Dora huckleberry was described in a leaflet as a militant negro woman arrested many times for her participation in struggles against discrimination and unemployment a fighter for negro rights candidates with this political profile were an important part of electoral efforts of the cp in the nineteen thirties chicago Through contemporary liberal mythology, it would have us believe that the Democratic Party has, for most of the 20th century, been the leading political force in the U.S. for anti-racism and black rights. The truth is that the CP did more anti-racist organizing in the 1930s alone than the Democratic Party has done in all of its existence. The flood of black members into the organization in the early 30s permeated the group from top to bottom. As the composition of the CP in Chicago became more black, the internal culture of the group changed. For example, many African American CP members brought traditions from the church into spaces where they organized as communists. One white CP member recalled that at a party meeting where the membership was predominantly black, those in attendance would follow every word of the speaker with real emotion, encouraging him as at a prayer meeting with cries of, yes, yes, comrade, and often an involuntary and heartfelt amen. By the end of 1930s, key positions were occupied by black members who took an active role in shaping the organization's approach to politics in the city. As a result, even conservative newspapers such as The Whip were forced to acknowledge the inroads the CP had made in the black community in Chicago. The communists have framed a program of social remedies which cannot fail to appeal to hungering jobless millions who live in barren want, while everywhere everywhere around them is evidence of restricted plenty in the greedy hands of the few. The CP also provided one of the only places where black and white activists could discuss, socialize, and protest together. Indeed, it was probably the most racially integrated institutions in the United States at the time. Over the course of the decade, the CP in Chicago organized interracial picnics, dances, and social events where black and white communists learned from each other and occasionally developed strong relationships, a rarity in the 1930s segregated Chicago Dempsey Travis who grew up in the black belt on the south side during this period recalls being impressed by the CP's commitment to black and white social relationships as a child this even led Travis to believe that any white person talking to a black person must be a communist I mean if you listen to Republicans today they still think that
0: oh yeah of course I mean that's the interesting thing about American uh, recent say last century American history Is how much continuity there is, as well as how much kind of shifting there is, as well. So it's kind of hard to, like, kind of put one narrative on it. For example, like what I'm coming to mind reading this over again is how the CP was kind of useful for radicalism as long as it was the space where interracial organizing could happen. Right. As soon as the Democratic Party basically became non racist crow yeah not not racist you're right not anti-racist but they they ended they were no no longer segregated right so now you could do it now blacks could even blacks were allowed in the democratic party right so once that was the case and blacks were able to participate in the major party it seemed like the communists were no longer needed right same with say the greens even as like a minor party were only needed until the Dems adopt at least outward-facing environmental policy, at least on the let's say right. uh, the state and county level, let's say not so much not the federal at all, but let's say you know we've we've done our job so to speak, even though we were formed as the anti-war, anti-corporate power party uh, as well. But we we have, let's say we're just let's just take us at face value. We're just about the environment, right? Right. Then, you know, our purpose fulfilled for the 2020s and on, you know, we should have a new radical party that does something that all the other co-opted or democratic orbit or establishment orbited organizations can't do. So the CP could be unsegregated. Yeah. Which was kind of its main, let's say, like, it's not the only thing, of course, about it. So it's the revolutionary potential. It's the messaging of being internationalist, right. which no other org in America does. It's it's all very um, jingoistic at the end of the day. Yeah. What can our orgs do, not better, but can com- be completely different? And in my mind, sometimes it's like, well, we're more democratic. Like we have the ranked choice voting. We actually have voting systems that are right. more representative. That's not really good enough, though. It's kind of, you need to look at, like, what's really, like, what are people really missing? And I suppose it's, like, we're missing a place and purpose. So maybe socialist or eco-socialist or whatever groups we have, they have to do that. Right. That all the other groups fail to do. You know, charity work fails to do. What all of our institutions are no longer trustworthy unless it's the food bank.
1: Yeah. So,
0: last last bit here. Um,
2: Lowell Washington, an African-American member of the Unemployed Councils, would later recall that after joining the CP, I had never really talked to a white man before, and I certainly hadn't said more than two words to a white lady. And here I was being treated with respect and speaking my mind and not having to worry about saying something that might rile him up. Let me tell you, it changed the way I thought about things that this was exceptional speaks to the deep-seated racism and indeed apartheid conditions in chicago in the 1930s it is therefore astonishing that the cp was able to carve out a space however small and tenuous for social interactions approaching mutual respect and solidarity among black and white radicals of course if most of the people are unaware of this history they are familiar with how it ends despite all of its promise The CP was more or less completely destroyed in the decades following the Depression, never again achieving the high-water mark of mass membership and activism achieved in the 1930s. The reasons for this collapse are many. Certainly internal political dysfunction combined with harsh state repression of the left during McCarthyism proved to be decisive factors. But it remains true that there is much to be learned from the astounding victories the CP was able to achieve in 1930 Chicago, in a city where black people were regularly met with terrorism, bombings, and brutal violence when they merely attempted to move out of designated areas of the city. The fact that the CP was able to do what it did is inspiring – it demonstrates that dogged organizing work on the basis of anti-racist socialist politics has the potential to forge political fountain formations that can shatter expectations about what is possible in the way of building interracial solidarity. The politics of multiracial radical political organization are complex and liable to run around or run aground in a number of different ways. The biggest danger is that of abstract color-blind goal of "quote unquote" unity. Encourage is accommodation with the racist order by designated certain issues as devices or "quote unquote" distractions from our main goals. Unity of this sort is nothing but a compromise with oppression. It is not an emancipatory goal. As Asada Shakur once puts, Uniting black and white revolutionaries to fight against a common enemy, the ruling class, is essential, but for black people, this solidarity must always be on the basis of power and unity rather than from weakness and unity at any cost. Genuine solidarity requires as a precondition that white workers reject racism and actively enlist themselves in the fight against it. For all its faults and mistakes, organizational, political, and er, personal, radicals today can learn a lot from the progress the CP made in the 1930s towards building a multiracial socialist organization based on mutual respect, solidarity, and militant anti-racism.
0: A few thoughts. Um, I I saw a clip of um, Logan Paul. Huh. And he actually, like... Over the last year, you know, BLM, um, upsurges and stuff, like, he's actually gotten really woke. He was actually arguing with some of his bro, you know, like, come on, bro, we gotta, you can't actually be neutral, you gotta be anti-racist, it's not enough to just not be racist. Like, he was repeating the talking point. It was a talking point for sure, but have a bro like him, so he's like a bro YouTuber really big. He'll probably be president in 20 years. (laughs) Um, Oh
2: my god, President Paul. Well,
0: three years. Thirty years more like it, because like the pattern, if there's a kind yeah. of numerical pattern to it, like Reagan enters politics in 1960, becomes president in twenty years. Yeah. Donald Trump starts threatening to run for president in the 90s. Yeah. Become president 2016. So you know, <laughs> and so it goes. Um, and in the next like media centered president will
2: be a YouTuber. Oh, that's gonna be awesome. Is it gonna be Vosh? <laughs> <laughs> yo imagine if Vo- imagine i think it Vos has to, to be someone big it has
0: to be big now so logan Paul's really big well, and there's just really
2: hit three hundred thousand uh, subscribers i think
0: million is kind yeah. of you're not big unless you have millions that's um, fair there are asmr artists with five times
2: that. <laughs> yeah. okay Yo, imagine someone being elected president just because they talk close like, to, to the, the microphone mic. no, and no, no. It's, make it, First of all, spine it's, it's, a, it's
0: a lot more than that, okay? These are all, like, <laughs> they're actors. They're really good. Um, I, I don't There's get, a sliding scale, but... I don't
2: watch ASMR. It well, doesn't I, trigger the reaction in yeah, me.
0: You're a you're normie. You're not a metahuman like me.
2: Oof. <laughs> no, it no, no. Bad, it's, man. it's okay. Uh,
0: well, I know a lot of people just get, like, Relaxed, or they use it as a sleep aid, and stuff like that. Um, but I, I definitely have that response, so. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when I got it as a teenager, like I had no idea what caused it, huh. um, or what it was. Just like I actually thought, like, that's what love felt like. Uh, Cause aw. it would usually be some breathy female talking to me, and like, oh, I really like her. and Oh, she makes me like feel like this. And I'm like, well, like, eh, I don't know if it's love because I'm not like attracted to her, you know, or or at least like I'm not in her that way, just right friends in the click, and and of course like you know especially because it wasn't someone I was close to, you know, but why particular voice hmm. anyway? Let's see, there was a few other thoughts. So the Logan Paul one, um, the oh yeah, raisin. In the, I wanted to um, mention raisin in the sun because that's kind of like Chicago blackness kind of. That even high art, you know, in the 50s, had to kind of be whitewashed of labor struggle. That, like, if these plays were really more, or or media was more honest, it would actually include, like, references to these other things. Because, like, say, Raising the Sun or other media, it's like, black people are always on their own. There's no militant struggle. There's no church to glean on. You know, it's like these things are absent in some a lot of these stories. And they are just stories. Right. They're reflective of something, right, or real lives, but they're not real. And that's kind of, I love, again, I love animation because I can't confuse it with reality. It does things that real people or real things can't do. Right. Um, Or rather, it doesn't look real. It is stylized. And so, you know, I'll always be a cartoon fanboy and stuff like that. Yeah. Hmm. Um, nerd. And uh, and I keep up even with, like, stuff that's out of my age group because it's just, like, more... It's just more interesting than what's live action. Because uh, when I look at a live action TV and programs, I'm just like, this is all the same stuff from 20 years ago. It's just redone and it looks a little better. Yeah. Or it's written a little... It's, like, updated writing. You know, whether it's a reboot of Animaniacs or... um, I, I just saw, like... Uh, this morning, just a, a minute or two of daybreak. You know, it's like this. This is just like some seventies movie, yeah. Of like, you know, post-apocalypse teenagers take over. I mean, it's Logan's drawn. <laughs> um, but but with uh, zombies, because you gotta have zombies. Everything has to fall apart before we can do anything fun <laughs> and have a call to adventure. Uh, so in the last uh, ten minutes or so, um, we're gonna hit. Uh, from Akarios, the Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice. They're uh, a piece called Beyond Mutual Aid Toward the Poor, Organizing the Poor. Uh, this is particularly focusing on the Black Panthers and their lunch program and stuff. By Gnomes, Sandweiss Back. Hmm. Filed under analysis. In the early months of the Great Depression, Herbert Hoover was fond of saying that prosperity is just around the corner. At the same time, millions were losing their jobs, facing utility shutoffs and evictions, moving into tent encampments and shanty towns and standing in bread lines that stretched for hours. In 1929, there was no public social safety net or welfare programs. Not even as we know them in our fractured form today. And the the, the scary thing is there were the bread lines where it's car lines. Yeah. So these massive filled highways and parking lots of cars. So that, like, because it's a pandemic bread line and not just a normal bread line because everyone's poor. But, um, which is also the case, though. Yeah. That people can't even look at each other and interact with each other at all. Like, you can't flyer people. I mean, I guess you could walk car to car and flyer people. Um, but God, you know, that would be, you'd probably be kicked off the property, you know, or something. Always barriers like that. So anyway, in 1929, there was no public social safety net or welfare programs unlike today, which somehow, you know, helps a bit. Not even as we know them in their fractured form today. Instead, the state's response was to attend to Wall Street and direct the poor and newly dispossessed toward a patchwork and intolerant system of private relief agencies and religious aid organizations which is what we still do today because there's still many people who either fall through the cracks or rather the cracks are now chasms because of the shredded social safety net that isn't really a net. It's just like it catches some people only maybe after a year of waiting for the paperwork to go through, even if you're on disability and stuff. It's amazing how many people I see in the hood that are like on crutches or on in chairs and their disability is increasing and that's been noticed you know not just you know by the right and stuff like oh these people are disabled they're faking it or something no it's that things are more dangerous and the work is like Ooh. you know or well, it's not just the work but just their health the food sucks and it always keeps like it just keeps getting worse and more unhealthy and never any better and the the environment you know it's poison. They worked locally to address their immediate overflowing needs, but in the early years of the Great Depression, they also became a political home for tens of thousands of poor people. Central to the council's vision. Oh, so these are the. Oh yeah. So again, a mention. So yeah, it comes back around to the Communist Party with their multiracial, unemployed councils. That's why I wanted to link these two together, mm-hmm. even if it's. I'm just paraphrasing the story uh, overall here. Just a few years later, the Social Security Act and other major government programs were created. This history is often told crediting FDR and a handful of supposedly transcendent politicians, but it was the collective efforts of masses of people that forced the government into action. Roosevelt himself did not have dreams of fundamental change for the poor, and by the end of the 30s, the media had become a constrained political project that saved American capitalism from itself. The significant public concessions that did make were instead the result of poor people taking action together. Today, we confront another economic collapse amid a vicious pandemic. In the last six weeks, we've witnessed the accelerated redistribution of wealth from the poor to the most rich. The government has funneled trillions of dollars into Wall Street, while the recent stimulus package still doesn't provide tens of millions of people with paid sick leave, sustained financial support, health care, and housing protections, and more. These millions are now lining up behind the 140 million who are already poor and one emergency away from poverty. This multitude must protect themselves and their communities in the shadow of a government that has abandoned them in ways that strikingly echo the Hoover administration. Within this context, many have turned to the idea of mutual aid. Community groups and ad hoc neighborhood associations are springing up to coordinate the sharing of food and supplies. Nonprofits are funneling their shrinking budgets toward direct service projects. Online organizations are offering virtual training. And even AOC has shared a how-to guide on the subject. Mike, have you seen the meme uh, – it's not really a meme, but it's a share post of a housing nonprofit that has basically ran out of funds because of the pandemic and everything this year. So their last kind of thing for the year is to the send their members or, or people on their lists a prepaid envelope for sending their yeah. <laughs> rent Yes, checks. I did see that. Now – Sometimes the the picture of it, and it's basically it's 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 the letter prepaid envelope with a note saying like you know this is all we, we know. Can it buster. can be
2: hard for you to pay your rent sometimes, so enjoy this complimentary envelope with which you can send your rent.
0: Now there are different ways of Ugh. interpreting that. Now I just laid out one of which, which is like their their group doing their best, and they just ran out of funds, and this is all they can do. Yeah. At the end of the year now. Now the tone of the language and the whole like, you know, we'll send you a check to help pay your rent that you probably don't have. Right. Um. But, you know, a dollar, a few dollars, you know, right. is all we can muster. Now sure. there was one meme where it's like, um, it was like, no, there's no perfect charity that exists. And then it's like, and then it's like this, which oh. is meant to be the perfect charity or something. Because nice. like, even when they only have $10 or, or a few hundred, they're going to send it out. You know? But the mass mailing is pretty expensive. It can add up to cost hmm. quite a bit. So it's not cheap to do this. Right. So, yeah, I, I definitely err on the side of, like, you know, they're doing the best with the budget they got or what they have yeah. left because they can't provide the direct relief.
2: I guess I was missing a little bit of context. When I saw that yeah. post, it was – I In the ironic way? Yeah.
0: And it can be taken that way, too, because it is, in fact, a failure of the nonprofit system and, and charity stuff and how, like, this isn't, yeah, this it's not good enough. Not good enough. Yeah. So it goes into the Panthers' lunch program and why they actually needed to do it, because Johnson's war on poverty was not including them. Mm. or it did not provide school lunches. But, of course, then, that's the thing. As soon as, like, and then maybe this is something I need to research, when did public schools start providing, quote-unquote, free lunch or free breakfast? And, of course, some in some states they haven't. They still charge. Yeah. And if you can't pay, you don't get it. Yeah. Um, Some states do provide it, you know. And, of course, that's, you know, it's also the cheapest terrible food. Right. Now, I think there was, uh, what was the? What was the movie? Was it Super Size Me that pointed this out? That for the same cost, they could actually make fresh food. It's just it's not the matter of the cost, but the contracting of it being all frozen or pre-made stuff for the companies that make it. What is forgotten is the political orientation of the breakfast program, talking about the Black Panthers program, which is radical and beyond the realm of mutual aid as we understand it. The Panthers initiated the program not just to feed people, but to actively and purposely demonstrate the failures of Johnson's war on poverty and the contradictions of a nation whose enormous wealth and enormous racism was increasingly being marshaled to hurt and impoverish the majority of people at home and around the world. These were treacherous waters. At the time, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI listed the Black Panthers in their breakfast program as the greatest threat to internal security in the country. <laughs> The government recognized that the program represented the kind. Well, they right. Yeah. Um, represented the kind of mutual aid that could catch fire across the wide populations of poor and dispossessed people who had been abandoned by the war on poverty and a hyper racist society. The Pampers ability to clearly demonstrate this abandonment unite leaders because, you know, along with the breakfast program, they were doing lectures. Yeah. You know, they were talking white, black power, and uh and socialism. Uh, in the early 1990s, as homeless leaders with the National Union of the Homeless were taking over vacant, federally-owned housing, they studied the experience of the Panthers. In that history, they saw revolutionary leaders who were beginning to understand that in order to end their suffering, they would need new forms of organization that could confront the government and the ruling class head-on. During these housing takeovers, homeless leaders identified the six Panther P's.
1: Hmm.
0: Let's shout them out. Program. Protest projects of survival, so that's kind of mutual aid. publicity work, that's what we do, hopefully, political education, which is also hopefully what we're doing, plans, not personalities, and that's number six, which I, I, I really like, plans, not personalities, because when it comes to organizing work, if you don't have a plan, it just becomes what the leader or yeah. the person with the most time or emotional fortitude wants, and it can't be that. You make a plan together, action items, right. and then you can actually do them. And then you, and then no one feels like they have to ask the one person permission or whatever. Right. Uh, the personalities. And the personalities get in the way real fast. More militant form of mutual aid that the homeless union called Projects of Survival, they explained, organizing attracts people on the basis of their immediate needs, food, housing, health care, etc., Activities like tent cities and housing takeovers are designed to meet people's needs and build organization in the process. As we come together to meet our common needs, opportunities for political education and other key elements arise. We have tremendous strength by virtue of addressing the problems which people are struggling with day to day. However, we don't just try to meet these needs individually. We use that struggle to fight for everyone's needs to be met. So it's it's kind of Conscious mutual aid, uh, which you know, you'll see across the country, a lot of mutual aid that's very unconscious. It's Hmm. just people helping other people, which of course is great, and it's also just proof that, like, this whole like, oh, we're all just self-interested animals, is complete.
2: Yeah, yeah, we live in a society.
0: We live in a society now. Of course, it's funny how quickly neoliberals use that and want to turn that around to like, you're upset that we live in a society. Or like Near Tanden, or or all these um new uh, yeah. the Biden cabinet. It's like oh you're upset God. they're corrupt. Where where do you live? We live in a society. <laughs> <sighs> um, so I'll just refer you to read more of this yourself. Let me get to the last. Um, it lists like other kind of um needs first mutual aid projects that are trying to be that are more conscious and uh, building organization more deeply. Uh, than just uh, like a nonprofit profit would. It's more in comparison to that than just straight activism. That's, right. you know. Um, my profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, stories or topics you'd like to hear discussed. Send us via social media on Facebook or Twitter. Or now our Gmail, uh, which is just three laughs, That's lefts with an S and then show. So it's two S's back to back. Ah. It's a little confusing, but it's three lefts show at Gmail. (laughs) This program is made as a part of independent community radio. So support this and all other producers here materially with a donation or membership to WCAALP at grandarts.org. And support the show, time, and telling others who would be interested in liking, sharing our pages. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps, but a full archive of the podcast, along with notes and info about ourselves, is found at 3Lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas and the things we've been talking about here in practice for yourself. So be well, keep it rad, keep waving the flags, the 3Lefts.